and we will get into the Word of God. Thank you, church, faithful church, for coming back and being a part of what we're doing. This is the first day of the week. This is when the disciples meet. This is when we study the Word of God together, and so appreciate you guys coming back. Obviously, we, we're tired. We had a long week, but man, this is, it's, it's the right kind of tired, right? Praise the Lord for that, and thank you guys for, for coming out. Um, yeah, like Troy mentioned, the theme of the conference, passing the torch to the next generation, you know, we heard a lot of good teaching about that subject, and, and so Troy obviously asked me to wrap this up um, today, and I suppose that that's fitting. Um, I have had the privilege to be able to do that in both of the two significant ministry endeavors of my life, both in Albania and, in, and here at FBC. And, uh, and as I thought about this and, and preparing this message for you this morning, um, I, I thought I would start by just communicating to you a sentiment, a theme that I've always had as a part of my ministry life. So, so I've been saved for 40 years now. I'm actually really excited to be able to say that. And uh, early on in my ministry life, I, I realized something, and this is actually the first little thing that I put in your notes, and this is the theme of, of it. It's, it's only do what only you can do. Now, some of you have been around, you've heard me say that before. In other words, what that really is trying to say is that you should always seek to train and replace yourself in whatever it is that you're doing. And then you're free to move on and do it again somewhere else. Now, why, why would that be such a value? Why would that be so important? Well, it's obvious. It's because it multiplies the work that gets done all around the world. If there's somebody else that can effectively do what you're currently doing, well, let them. And then you can go do something that nobody else is doing, and more things get done, right? I mean, isn't that really what we should be doing? Isn't, isn't that really the fulfilling, or at least doing our part to help fulfill the Great Commission? We say we believe the Great Commission. We say we're all in on reaching the whole world. I mean, it's not the great suggestion. We're, we're supposed to take it seriously. But the question really is, are we actually planning to live our life strategically so that each of us can do our specific part to obey and help fulfill the Great Commission? And, and this is actually an important part of the sentence in our generation. Now, I know that many of you want that. Obviously, you're faithful to the Lord, you're faithful to this church, and you've demonstrated that over many years. And, and that really is what this year's conference was all about. We should want to maximize our effectiveness in our walk and service to the Lord. Amen. And so that's the title that I've given today's message, How to Maximize your effectiveness in serving the Lord. We'll be in Acts chapter 20 in a minute. You can get ready there if you like. But today what I want to do is take a, a look at a biblical example of how that played out in the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, after all, Paul is the apostle to the Gentile church. 
He is very clearly our example in ministry. But let's just sit back for a second and ask ourselves, what do we really know about the Apostle Paul? Well, there's some things we know about him. He was an apostle. He was a missionary. He was a foreign missionary. He traveled a lot. He started a bunch of churches. He suffered a lot along the way. And he was greatly used to God wherever he went. That's all true. Various aspects of his life at various times and different places and ways that we want to tap into that resource. But the thing about Paul's life that I want us to see today is that he also had to learn how to transition a ministry to others well. Because if he didn't do it, well then the work of the Lord would stop after he left. And really, that's the key, isn't it? Isn't that the thing that we need to understand? So the next statement I put in your notes is this, the work of the Lord is greater than you. The work of the Lord is more important than you. The work of the Lord is more important than your personal preferences and comforts. The work of the Lord is bigger than all of us. And by the way, that should encourage you. We have something that we can live for that's greater than ourselves. That's what should get you up in the morning. That's it's what should put pep in your step. That's what should get you excited about what you do for the Lord because what you're investing in is bigger than you. If it was just you and your bank account and your house and your recreation and your family, now those are important things. Well, that, you know, is temporal. But the work of the Lord is going to go on and on. And, and, and actually, is it not fair to say that the Lord deserves for us to behave and to strategize our lives, to live in such a way? I mean, how can you possibly obey Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8 if you don't do this, right? You'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You should be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Well, how can you possibly be in all these places at the same time? You can multiply yourself in ministry, even geographically, if you learn how to invest in the next generation. You disciple and train and leave them to continue, and you potentially can go on to a new location or role or whatever that case might end up being. But if you don't learn how to successfully pass the torch to the next generation, if you don't know how to make disciples and train them so that they can sufficiently and efficiently continue the work that you were doing, well, then that work will die with you. And that's why Paul's example for us, I think, is so critically important. So this event in the life of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 that we're going to read in just a minute starts in verse 17 and I'm going to read down to verse 32, but, but it's the story of the Apostle Paul returning back home towards Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. And he's passing through the regions that he had previously started churches in. And he wants to check up on these churches and he wants to see how they're doing and make sure that they're doing okay. And in verses 17 to 32, he's in a town called Miletus. 
which is near unto Ephesus, and he calls for the elders from the Ephesian church, the Ephesian elders to come, and he wants to meet with these elders from the Ephesian church. Now, this is a church that he would have started during his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, and actually what Paul is doing is he wants to say goodbye. Or in a version of English that maybe we don't use every single day, the actual term he wants to do is he wants to say farewell. And farewell is a more permanent version of goodbye. Goodbye could be I'll see you later, but farewell is fare ye well. I, I probably not see you ever again. And that's what he specifically says in this text. In other words, this becomes his final words of farewell to these, this group of elders. And as a result, then, it gives us a good outline of, I think, what passing the torch can actually look like. So if you're ready, I'm going to read all these verses. There's a few, so hang with me, and then, uh, and then we'll jump into it. Verse 17, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came in, into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me, by the laying in way to the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. So let's go to Lord in prayer and we'll get into our outline. Heavenly Father, I do pray God that you would take this passage of scripture. That you would teach us the specific things that we can learn from Paul's example. And saying farewell to these Ephesian elders. And, and we can understand what, what to look for. What to expect as, as we consider what we do in our investments to our kids, to our disciples, to those that minister alongside of us as we continue to grow and help to train and build them up so that they can continue to take that torch and run to the next generation. God, we need to hear from you, and so we just want to thank you in advance for what you're going to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing we need to notice about Paul is that, and this is your first point, is that uh, he learned to embrace tribulations. Embrace tribulations. So certainly Paul endured many hardships in his quest to maximize his effectiveness for God and for his kingdom. 
You could take your own time and you can read about those from chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 and on and his various interactions with the places and the people that he was and the ways that they persecuted him and tried to kill him and, and all these sort of things that went on and he had to escape for his life and hide and run. And I mean, you could say that Paul took it on the chin more than a few times. Verses 17 and 19, he specifically says that you know that from the first day that I came into Asia, what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. I had a tough road, and you're full aware of it. And so the idea is very simply this, if you're going to maximize your effectiveness and your quest for serving the Lord and establishing His kingdom, well, then you're going to have to count the cost. You see, this is something you need to understand if you don't already. Salvation is a free gift. Hallelujah. But discipleship is expensive. That's why we kick off a class, the cost of discipleship. You need to learn to count the cost if you're actually going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, eternal life is gifted unto you. You couldn't earn that if you wanted to. But if you want to be faithful and walk with the Lord, it's going to cost you, well, ultimately, whatever it is you're holding on to because the Lord wants to be the Lord, right? It's going to cost you something. What did it cost Paul? Well, it cost him a lot. He summarized it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll pick it up in verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And in proof of his apostleship, he goes on to list what he's been through. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that were without... That which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. We're going to have a sign-up for the next series of pastors. Who wants to join? <laughs> Paul had a tough road. And that's a tough lineup. And actually, I can say, selfishly maybe, praise the Lord, it's not likely that any of us will have to live through that lineup that Paul lived through. But maybe... Maybe none of us will have to live through that lineup that Paul lived through because maybe none of us are going to be as dedicated to the cause as Paul was. Maybe the more dedicated you are to the cause, the more fearless you are to go forward, the more willing you are to tell the truth, the more opposition you'll encounter. And the more you're willing to just kind of go with the flow of this old world, well, everything will kind of go with you instead of against you. Something to think about. You see, here's the thing about Paul. He was not only aware of Jesus Christ's warning in John chapter 15 and verse 20, 
where it says, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And if they've kept my saying, they'll keep yours also. He wasn't just aware of it. He embraced it. He willingly accepted the challenge. Maybe he was motivated by the example of the apostles that went before him earlier in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles in verses 40 to 42. I mean, they embraced the tribulation. It says, and to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, notice rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. I feel confident in saying the Apostle Paul didn't enjoy those tribulations. But how do we know that he actually embraced them? Well, because we go back to our text and look in verses 22 to 24. And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying, the Holy Ghost is speaking to Paul, telling him what's waiting for him. Bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of those things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Because for Paul, the work of the Lord was greater than he was. He embraced the warnings that it's going to be rough for you. You go back there, it's going to be tough. They're going to beat you up. They're going to throw you in jail. They're going to treat you badly. I'm giving you a warning. And it was the Holy Ghost that warned him. And he's like, I don't care. I'm going to embrace it. I don't care. Paul was looking to finish strong. He knew the clock was ticking. He knew he wasn't going to be around forever. So he wanted to finish his course with joy. And you finish your course with joy by successfully setting up others to continue the work after you're gone. And we know that ultimately Paul did finish his course with joy because it says so in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And what did he do? He left his ministry to his disciples. Well, that's what Jesus did. John chapter 17 and verse number 4, I've finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And John 17 is that prayer where he just continues to pray for his disciples. He left his ministry with his disciples to continue after him. Now, I want you to notice when Paul left Ephesus, he didn't know exactly what was going to happen next in his life. That's what we just read. He just knew that he had to go somewhere else. He knew that wherever he went, he was going to testify of the grace of God. He knew that the Holy Ghost would lead him through it while he was there. But he knew that his work in Ephesus was done. He knew that they would see his face no more. Now, he cared for them. He provided for them. He sent them Timothy to be a pastor. He sent them Tychicus. He sent other people. He cared for them from afar, but he would not return. And actually, that's comforting to me because, well, that's been my experience having done this a couple times as well. You see, I I finished my course in Albania. The work needed to continue, but my role was done. I wasn't actually sure 
what was going to be next for me specifically. I knew that I was going to be a part of evangelism and discipleship and hopefully leading a church one day. And so my family went to the city of Atlanta thinking that that was the next step for us. We didn't know at the time that it was only temporary. I was only there two and a half years. God ultimately wanted me here in Ohio. That was cool. And now I've finished my course as your senior pastor, passed the torch on to Troy. He's doing a great job, primary leadership. I think I have clear direction about what I'm supposed to do now. And we're walking through that step by step. Well, what is it that I'm doing now? Some of you may wonder, what is he doing now? Well, that's point number two in your outline. See how I did that? And that's to emphasize teaching. Emphasize teaching. Verses 20 and 21. How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul taught them publicly and privately. The house-to-house is not house churches where he preached because that would be publicly and publicly. No, it's publicly and privately. It's teaching and exhortation. It's knowledge and understanding. It's Sunday preaching and midweek life groups and personal discipleship. Why did he do that? Why are both important? Well, because you can't possibly do the right thing until you know the right thing to do, right? That's clear. People need to be taught. So what's the example that the Holy Spirit gives us of what he was teaching them? Verse 21, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul taught, among other things, I'm sure. Well, what is repentance? Do you know? Do you know what repentance is? You see, I, I recently heard someone say that repentance is a verb. Actually, it's not. It's a noun. So not everyone who uses the word knows what it means. Maybe you've heard people say repentance is turning around, turning from your old ways to God's ways. Is that right? You see, that would make repentance a work, wouldn't it? Is repentance a work? Well, if it is, we got a problem with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, don't we? By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Whatever we know about repentance, we know this, it's not a work. Not in the Bible, not in the church age. It can't be. Because Romans 4, 5 says, but to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So what you might need is a teacher like Jesus Christ to help you understand what it really means. So in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 and 29, we read this. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. So the turning and doing something differently came after the repenting. Do you see that? You know what repentance is? Repentance is a change of mind. 
That's what it is. It can be associated with faith because true saving faith is when you change your mind about you, about God, about your sin. You decide, you make a decision to believe the gospel and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You say, how do you know if a guy's repented? Well, I don't know. Has he changed his mind? You know what I just did there? I just taught you some doctrine. That's biblical teaching and understanding passed on to the next generation. That's what Paul did. That's what we're supposed to do too. Now we go back to Acts chapter 20. Pick it up in verse 25. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. That's Paul taking the great commission seriously. Matthew 8, 28, 19, and 20. Right? You're going to go and teach all nations. You're going to make disciples of all nations. And you're going to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I, Jesus Christ, have commanded you. Teaching them all things, all the counsel of God. And in this church, if you're a regular, you know very well what all the counsel of God should look like. All the counsel of God means all three applications of Scripture. There is an historical application, there is a devotional application, and there is a doctrinal application of Scripture. And typically, what you get from most churches these days, if they give you Bible at all, is they'll spend a little bit of time talking about the historical application, what happened 2,000 years ago or however many thousand years ago, in the story during history. They might even do a little bit of grammar for you. And then they're going to give you a devotional application of how you should apply that to your life today. And that's fine. That's well. That's good. But if they're leaving out the doctrinal application of the Scripture, if they're leaving out what is frequently the prophetic application of Scripture, then they're not actually giving you the whole counsel, all the counsel of God, are they? So two-thirds of the applications are not all the counsel. And so generally speaking, in our Certainty Conference, we emphasize doctrine in this conference, and this year we just wanted to emphasize how important it is to pass it on into the next generation. And, and so rather than specifically focusing on a particular doctrine per se in this conference, we were just reminded that we need to take it seriously. And, and the fact should be obvious that we should take it seriously and pass it on to the next generation. Why? Because doctrine matters. It matters. The word doctrine, you guys know, it just means teaching, the specific teaching. And it's teaching truth, right? And truth comes from a proper understanding of the Bible. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Right? So doctrine is the teaching of all of the counsel of the Word of God. It's, and, and this is actually very important. I want you to get this. It is often and should be most frequently expounded to you from your local church teaching ministry. And God knows that. 
And so God specifically set up the local church, sending gifted teachers to help you learn. What a blessing. And among the various spiritual gifts that God gives a believer in Jesus Christ, do you realize that some of the gifts are ranked higher in importance to the body's benefit than other gifts? all, All gifts are important, all edify, all help. Everybody's role is critically important, 1 Corinthians 12. But there are a few that are listed as more important in order than the others. And we're going to pick up 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 28 near the end of that chapter where God describes, it says, And God hath set some in the church, and He's going to give you an order, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, and then after that, with no specific order, all the rest. Miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. He asked some rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? No, of course not. Are all prophets? No, of course not. Are all teachers? No, of course not. Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, of course not. Verse 31. And this is the admonition to you. But covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. That more excellent way comes into chapter 13 in the description of charity. But I want you to understand, the most important gift for the body of Christ was the apostle. But the gift of the apostle is temporary and no longer available. So the second most important gift was the gift of the prophet. And the gift of the prophet was temporary. And is also no longer available. So the third most important gift is the gift of the teacher. But the gift of the teacher remains. And it is available. See, the reason those first two are gone is because they were revelatory in nature. They were giving out new revelation of God as the the scriptures, the, the, the preserved word of God was being dished out originally. But once it's done, now we just need people to teach it. So according to verse 31... We are to covet biblically gifted teachers among us. Why? Because doctrine matters. It matters. Let me just throw out a general question for somebody who may be just passing through the crowd or listening online or whatever. Are are you looking for a new church? What should you prioritize in your search Above all else? Well, the answer is right here. You should prioritize gifted Bible teaching. And once you find that, stay there and plug in and help to develop all the other peripheral ministry issues that you and or your family might enjoy, whether it be with children or activities or music or all the other things that are great, but don't let those peripheral things be the things that drive your decision of where and how and why you pick a church. We do this for you every week at First Baptist Church. 
Every Sunday morning and through our process of discipleship and training, we teach you the doctrines of the Bible. And y'all, it only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. And if we're going to be unyielding on anything, it has to be on doctrine. Because the only pure thing that exists is the Word of God, right? Proverbs chapter 30. It's the only pure thing there is. There's no pure people. There's no pure churches. If you're looking for it, good luck. There's no pure groups of churches. Only the Word of God is pure. And in my experience, truth is way more important than some flowery presentation. You may have noticed that. Because I've just figured it out. If a man's hungry, he's going to eat. It doesn't really matter how you decorate the plate. The Bible says that Paul was rude in speech, but not in knowledge. It's also my experience that there are hungry people out there that appreciate the truth. And they appreciate it as it is. Not necessarily sugar-coated. And in a day and a time in which we live where there literally is a spiritual famine in the land. Not a famine of having Bibles available, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Finding some real food, it's rare. And because it's rare, it's precious. It's precious. If you want to maximize your effectiveness, you have to keep your doctrine straight. But once you do, then we're going to go on to the third point. You need to evade turning, verses 28 to 31. You see, there's a danger that arises when you start becoming effective for the Lord. The enemy shows up. I've heard it said, I've often liked it, and so I've quoted it. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to the devil. That seems counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it's absolutely right. The closer you get to the Lord, the more dangerous you become to the devil. So the devil's going to show up in your life to oppose what you're trying to do. You would think the closer you get to the Lord, the farther, because they're polar opposites. I understand in the world of sin and righteousness. But the closer you get to the Lord, the more the devil's going to show up to try and stop you because you're dangerous. And that's an important thing. The devil's going to try and use people to try and turn you away from following the whole truth. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Ponder the path of thy feet. What good advice that is. Think about where you're pointed. And let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. If you're pointed in the right direction, work hard to make sure you stay there. Because once you're on the right track, you need to be vigilant to stay on track. So Paul gives a charge to the next generation continuing in Ephesus, starting in verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock of God, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember, 
that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. You see, they need to take heed. They need to watch out. Because there's going to be some new members that are going to show up. They're going to join the church. And they're going to work to devour the sheep. Now, y'all, we could camp here. We could have us a good little fireside chat for a long, long time about all the details of how they act and how they work and how they maneuver and what they do and what to watch for. And, and man, that's a great Bible study. It's not germane to where we're trying to go and we've got a lot to see. Can we just suffice it to say when you got something good going on, the devil's going to send somebody in to infiltrate and you are admonished to watch for them. Watch for them. But just about the time, you're like, okay, okay, okay. We got a security detail. I mean, we got it. Okay. Just about the time you think that you know everyone. This may be, for example, it's in a bigger church, it's harder to know everybody coming and going, whatever. Praise the Lord. In a smaller church, everybody kind of knows everybody because there's not that many people. But just about the time you think you know everyone that comes in from the outside and you think you're safe, he goes on with his warning because there's going to be some other existing members, yet carnal and having desirous ambition. And it says that they're going to rise up. Well, that's pride. And they're going to rise up to try and steal your disciples. Draw away disciples after themselves. Been in church very long? This really happens. It really does. It's sad. The Apostle John wrote about it in his last little epistle, 3 John. Only one chapter, verse number 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. He called him out by name. Diotrephes is looking to make a name for himself. So he's not messing with John and all these other guys because those guys might steal, steal his spotlight. If these infiltrators get their way, they're going to steer you off course. So what you need to do is you need to set your spiritual compass with the Word of God in prayer. That's what he's admonishing this group to do, to evade turning to the right hand or the left. Set their spiritual compass with the Word of God in prayer. They are to do what the early apostles did back in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 4 where it says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's exactly what Paul told the Ephesian elders to do. He told them to feed the church of God. That's the ministry of the Word of God. The Word of God is the spiritual food. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 1. He said it to a group of elders just like Paul did. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. Verse number two, feed the flock of God which is among you. Jeremiah, the prophet in an Old Testament context, nevertheless said a similar thing in 
chapter 3 and verse number 15. And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Well, that's what Paul did for them. Because he was both publicly and from house to house. Knowledge and understanding. So that's exactly what he now expects for them to continue to do. Because as the sheep, the believers in the Ephesian church grow, they're going to need more than just milk. They're going to need some meat from God's Word. And that's doctrine. That's doctrine. And by the way, can I just point out that they are to feed the sheep that are among them. Our teaching ministry is for you. That's what it's for here at First Baptist in New Philadelphia. There's no biblical precedent for a church taking on the teaching ministry for Christians outside of their own local church unless the pastor of that local church invites them in to help him. Then it's fine. But you are to feed the people that are among you. That's why these Christians today that, well, I, you know, I, go to, I watch church online. I got my favorite TV preacher. You, that guy wouldn't know you if he bumped into you at Walmart. You don't. Listen, pastors are to be teachers, and teachers are to be pastors, shepherds over your life. It all fits together. So what did he tell them to do? Well, give yourselves continually the ministry of the Word and prayer. Well, that's what he says. Watch and remember. Verse 31. Watch and remember. That's prayer. Didn't Jesus often command His disciples to watch and pray over and over again? Mark chapter 14, 37. And He cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The, tr the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. So you have to beware of the attacks coming that are going to try and turn you to the right hand or to the left. Stay on course. And you do that by consistently making sure that you are on the right course by prayerfully staying in the Word of God. You need to understand that biblical Christianity can be, listen to me, can be erased from this planet in just one generation. Every generation has to answer for themselves. It only takes one. If we quit doing our job making disciples and training them to understand the truths and to have a little steel in their spine and a little fire in their belly to stand up and, and march on, it will end. And this I know because this was what met me when I landed in the little country of Albania immediately after they opened their doors from the most strict version of Eastern communism that existed in modern history. That little nation became officially in their constitution legislated as an atheist country. And I landed there 
six months, within six months of the first opening of their country to any foreigners. They allowed no gospel, no Bible, no churches. They allowed no religions, no cults, no other world religions. They allowed no form of mention of God, of God at any time. And in my early experience in, in witnessing to people and trying to establish God's name as a beachhead in that country, I've heard people talk about secret Christians that endured the communism, and, and I pray and hope that there were some. I never met one. And I tried to find them, and I tried to track them down, and I tried to get a legitimate, verifiable testimony of somebody who was born again and was faithful to the Lord throughout the 45 years of communism and 25 years of legislated atheism. Never found one. Now, if there was one or two, I hope they were. I'm only saying that to say this. One generation, one evil communist dictator. But it's not because he was so smart. It's not because he was so evil. It's because whoever was saved before World War II didn't do their job to pass the torch to the next generation to be willing to endure the sufferings of Christ like they were willing to endure in communist Russia, Bulgaria, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, on and on and on. They were willing in those countries to suffer persecution for Jesus' sake. We don't read of one story in Albania. That's why we have to take the Great Commission as applicable to every generation because every generation has new people born we think we fulfilled it here more people are born we got to keep going that's why it's our job to pass what we have to the next generation and then that leads us to our final point number four and that's entrust to turnover entrust turning it over he says in verse 32, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Commending someone to God is to present or entrust them to God and to the word of His grace. Because those things are able, God and His word, amen, are able to keep you standing. The Holy Spirit and the Bible are really all you need at the end of the day, right? And to give you an eternal inheritance. So the commending over to the Lord is the final step of biblical discipleship. It's the capstone of Paul's missionary strategy. Paul summarized his efforts at the end of his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, Starting in verse 21, notice there's like 10 steps in here. You'll notice the last one. 14.21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Once elders are proven and ordained, there's no more need for supervision. They're deemed fully capable to follow the Lord on their own. 
We can continue a relationship with them, but we have to let them go. Even if that means that they might make some mistakes. Any of you who have raised children to adulthood know exactly what we're talking about. There comes a time. You've done all you can do. You've tried your best, truly. It's time to let them go. Are they going to mess up? Eh, hope not. Probably a little, maybe, hopefully only a little. You've got to let them go. And this is very important because whether we're preparing the next generation of church leaders and pastors or just preparing our kids to follow the Lord faithfully in their lives, there comes a day that they have to do it themselves before the Lord. Because at the end of the day, the next generation is responsible. The next generation is responsible. That literally means they are able to make a response. They're response-able. If you spell it wrong. They're response-able before the Lord. Especially if we have done our part in training them. So we've emphasized all week the need and the responsibility that we have as the current generation to make sure we do all we can to pass down the doctrine of God. But they have to hear and obey. They have to heed what they've been instructed. They have their part to play. This is the book of Proverbs. I gave you a few examples. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 8. This is the instruction of a father to a son. My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Chapter 3, verse 11. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Chapter 19, verse 26. He that wasteth his father and chaseth away his mother is a son that causes shame. And bringeth reproach. 28.7 Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son. But he that's a companion of riotous men shameth his father. I'm not going to explain all these verses. They're intuitive. They're simple. They're clear and obvious. All the point I'm trying to make is if the son who's been instructed rightly grows up and blows it that's not necessarily on you. All you can do is pass along the truth. Train up a child in the way he should go. Isn't a guarantee that he will. Whether or not they go there will ultimately be up to them. And the next generation themselves needs to understand that. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10, the Holy Spirit is very explicit in the way that he phrases this judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one, each and every one, all collectively but every one individually, may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You see, what worries me about the up-and-coming 
generation is that in society, they're doing everything they can to kill you guys. And they're, they're bombarding you with a mindset of entitlement. And they bombard you with a mindset of victimhood. That whatever bad things happen, it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's a sickness. It's an illness. It's a chemical imbalance. It's my parents did it. My daddy treated me bad. You don't know my situation. It's always somebody else's fault. It's never your responsibility to just stand up and do what's right. That's a trend, and it's sad, and it's wrong, and it's evil. But that's not going to hold any water at the judgment seat of Christ. That victim, victimhood entitlement mentality isn't going to work very long when you're standing face to face with those eyes of fire and that glorious revealing. Because 1 Corinthians 10.13 is still in the Bible. There hath no temptation taken you, youngin, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, amen, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. God's faithful. He'll walk you through it. But you've got to respond. The next generation has the responsibility to listen and to heed the truth that's communicated to them. They too have a responsibility before God to do their part and seek the Lord on their own. It's not only on us. It's not only on the previous generation to make sure that they continue, right? At some point, you just got to let them go. And for us, that's hard sometimes because to let them go means we need to exercise faith in God that God is capable to steer them through whatever challenges they might have. God can take over from here. So, I'm about done. I'm going to wrap it up with a couple of questions. You want to make a difference in your life? Do You want to maximize your effectiveness for the Lord? Well, then you need to embrace tribulations. It's a hard road, but it's well worth it. You need to emphasize teaching because absolute truth is absolutely all the next generation needs. You need to evade turning. You need to keep your course steady by keeping in the Word of God in prayer. And you need to entrust a turnover. You need to do what you can in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. Well, you say, how did that work for Paul? Well, pretty good. The Ephesian church became a powerhouse in the region. Paul writes a letter to the church in Colossae. We have no evidence whatsoever that Paul ever visited the city of Colossae. The twin city with Colossae was Laodicea. Where did those guys get the gospel? Well, the odds are good, we don't know 100% for sure, that it was the Ephesian church that the Bible says reached out into the entire region surrounding them. They probably led them to the Lord. They probably started the Colossian church. At least it's worth considering. Paul never visited those cities. But that's what you want from people that follow you. You want your disciples to go farther than you've ever been able to go. There's no jealousy, that's, that's joy, right? 
I couldn't be prouder. I couldn't be happier that the ministry in Albania has grown and multiplied far beyond what I left it at 15 years ago or however many years ago it was. 17, how many is there? It's too many. It's crazy. At the end of the day, we're going to all give a personal account before the Lord at this judgment seat of Christ of what we did and what was given to us. And Jesus did tell us to whom much is given, much is required. And the good news, bad news for you, First Baptist Church, is you've been given much. So that includes us as the trainers of the next generation, and that includes the next generation themselves. And what they do with that truth that was passed down to them. So the Lord has something for you. Whatever that is, let's commit it to Him now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider these things, God, I just pray that You would help each and every one of us to find that one next thing that You want for me to do. I pray that each of us would just recognize whether or not we're doing our job training the others, whether we're doing our job even growing ourselves, spending regular time in your word and prayer and being discipled and being trained. And if we have and if we are, are we passing that on to those beyond us? And those that are younger, are they heeding and listening to and obeying the things they're learning? God, wherever you would have your finger land on the heart of each brother and sister here, I pray that you would just make it clear. And I pray, God, for the brothers and sisters here that they would honestly and sincerely hear your voice and have the courage to respond, to correct whatever might need correction. And maybe nothing needs correction. Maybe we heard it and maybe we just rejoice in the truth knowing that as far as I know, I think I'm doing that. Praise the Lord. But God, this is your time, and I pray that your people would respond. We pray in your holy name. Amen.